and let us pray. Father, thankful for your revealed word. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself in nature and that you have revealed yourself more clearly in your completed scriptures that through Jesus Christ we now uh, have a better comprehension of who you are and and, uh, your ways, your love for us. And Lord, we are confident in the strength of your word and the power of your gospel. And so we pray that you'd help it this morning through the the the, um, the direction of your spirit to change us and to and to uh, revi- refine us to be more like our Savior. Lord, help us to appreciate your word more and to understand properly how you do speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series this week that will last six weeks, and it's called uh, "Cultivating a Relationship with God," and. Um, and it's designed to help us, help ground us in our foundational Christian disciplines. Um, so to, to put it there like it's on your handout, to give us a biblical understanding of why we should cultivate a relationship with God on a daily basis and to equip us with practical tools that will help us. So um, this title assumes two things. First, that it's possible to meet with God. That's what we want to address this week. We want to answer that question. Is it possible to meet with God? And then it also assumes that we we should meet with God. So we're going to address that question next week. Why should we meet with God? What's so important about it? And obviously we're going to have um, positive responses to both of those. And then if you look in the back of your handout, you'll see verses three through six, or I'm sorry, weeks three through six. Weeks three and four, we talk about meeting God in His Word, and then meeting with God in prayer, and then we'll talk in the final week about dangers and pitfalls. Look down at the bottom of the last page there, and notice the book recommendation uh, for this class, which I'll lean on a little bit, and it's Spiritual Disciplines by Donald Whitney, and it's the book of the month for, for you saw a, a note about that in the bulletin last week. There's a sign-up sheet on the back table if you'd like to order a copy of that book. And unfortunately, it won't be here uh, for the entire series because the um, the sign-up goes through the 31st. But um, I can get it to you probably by the next week, by the February 7th. So if you're interested in, in um, another tool or resource to help you think towards these spiritual disciplines. Now, his book, Donald Whitney, he doesn't just focus on the Word and prayer. Those are our two primary focus, focuses. In, in our class, but he focuses on much more when it comes to spiritual disciplines. And uh, so I, I recommend it to you highly. I've I found great value in it. So uh, there's that for you. All right. So the first assumption that we have when we talk about cultivating a relationship with God is is that we can, that, that it's actually possible to cultivate a relationship with God. And that's really a big assumption because... In order to cultivate a, a relationship with someone, it requires that we have some interaction with them. Uh, it, it begins with an introduction to that person. It's the beginning of a journey towards knowing them more intimately. I'm sure each of the married couples in the room today remember the first time that they met their spouse. And, and that time in which you first met your spouse was the first step towards getting to know that person and marrying them. And in a similar way, we believe that God is a real person. That that we would not be here today if if we didn't believe that we could possibly meet with God. That it was not even possible to do so. 
But we, we believe from the Scriptures that we can actually know God. And the question that we have to ask is, how can, can our knowledge of God be possible? And, and the answer is, it can only be possible because God has revealed Himself to us. You see, we can't just set out on a quest and just start pursuing after God if God chose not to reveal Himself to us. And so we have to come to know God on the basis of how He reveals Himself to us. And so that's what we need to see here this morning is how does God reveal Himself to us? And we just sang about them, and we're going to see them in the text of Scripture as well, that God reveals Himself in two primary ways or two fundamental ways. First is through nature. We call this general revelation. And then He does it through His Word. We call that special revelation. All right, so we're going to take both of those in turn. Um, we, we need God to reveal Himself to us because we are finite. He is infinite. And we can't know an infinite creature, with, or we can't know an infinite person, I should say. He's not a creature. Uh, he's the Creator. We can't know an infinite person apart from His re- revelation of Himself. That is, that it's His prerogative to determine whether we should know Him or not. And thankfully, we, got a, we have a God who not only is, He exists, but we have a God who speaks and he, he speaks and, and, and uh, reveals to us who he is. He, he interprets for us some of the things that are going on. Like you, you just go through the Old Testament and you see when some huge event takes place like the flood, then you have God speaking about it, often through his, his people, but sometimes through his audible voice. And, and that's the nature of God. He, he's not a God who hides himself from his creation, but he, he speaks to his creation. He reveals himself. Look at this uh, question uh, number two in the Westminster Larger Catechism, it says, How does it appear that there is a God? And the answer is that the very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. So that is what we're going to be referring to as general revelation. That's, that's something that, that we're going to see here in the first part of Psalm 19. The very light in, uh, of nature in man, the works of God, they declare plainly that there is a God. That's the basic understanding that everybody has of God. And then, notice the second part of the answer, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. So if we're going to be saved, it doesn't come through, you know, just our knowledge of God, you know, as we're, as we're born into this world made in his image. We need something else. We need to know the word through the spirit. And that's what the catechism there teaches. And I think rightfully so. I think that's based on what the scriptures teach. So, in, Revel- in I'm sorry, Psalm 19, would someone read verses 1 and 2? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. Okay, and he goes on basically all the way down through verse 6 and says, you know, the, one of the clearest expressions of God, that, that God exists, is the Son. That, that verse 4, the line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he's placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom. Every time the sun comes up, it is clear evidence that God exists. It's like the bridegroom coming out of his tent in the morning. That is, he's ready to come and be married. He doesn't hide, right? He doesn't, he doesn't make it secret that, that today is his wedding day, right? Everybody knows it's his wedding day because he makes it clear. And the same thing is true about the sun. It's that God is so real, so obvious to all people that, that even um, 
this son is, is like a bridegroom coming out of his tent. And this is what the Westminster Catechism draws on when it tells us here that God uses his works to show himself. That, that um, Psalm 19 here, verse 1, and the heavens are declaring the glory of God. So they're speaking about God's glory, that God exists. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night pours forth knowledge. And notice, verse 3, there's no speech, nor are there words where their voice is not heard. Is there a place where God's revelation through his creation is not seen? Right? A person could technically go and hold themselves up at some in some part of the world, you know, in some cave or, or in some bunker or something, and, and yet they would still know that God exists. Do you know why? Because God has clearly revealed himself through his creation, whether that be in their own person, like how they are made up, in the things that they eat. They recognize that God feeds them. We're going to talk about some of the ways that God does this. Keep your place here in Psalm 19 and turn to Romans chapter 1. And these two passages here are kind of the key texts when it comes to proving that, that, um, that God has revealed himself generally to all people. This is the, the passage I use when people try to argue that there is no God. Um, this, the, this text says otherwise. You know, they may say that there is no God, but God says that they don't believe that. They don't ultimately believe that because everybody knows it. Uh, verse 18. For the wrath of God, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So they know something to be true, but they suppress it. They push it down. They don't want to, to um, acknowledge it, confront it. Because, verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them. So, they say God doesn't exist, but God says they know I exist. Who are we going to believe? Right? We, we have to believe God because God says, what is known about me is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 4, verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So, we can see at least um, here that, that God reveals himself through his creation, that all people know that. And so the question that we might ask now is, well, will it be enough for us to simply attempt to meet with God through our nature or, or through his nature, right? How, how God has revealed himself. If everybody in the entire world can see that God exists through creation, then th- is that enough? for us to come and meet with him on those terms. There are a number of philosophies and religions that would say yes to that question, right? That, that we can meet with God through nature. We just need to get closer to the trees or, or whatever the case. But, but do you think that, that we would understand all that we need to understand about God if we decided, decided just to move up to Tequamanen Falls in the UP and just sit every morning and just soak in maybe the snow at this time of the year, but but soak in all the creation there. Would we know all that we need to know about God in order to come and have a relationship with Him? Sure, it's beautiful up there, um, but we're limited in how much we can know about God through His creation. So creation is important in revealing something about God, but creation is not final in how it, it, it speaks of God. It simply is a pointer at saying, yes, see, God does exist. 
But but in creation, he doesn't show us our our sin, our need for a savior, and that his son is the answer to that problem of our sin, the the, the rebellion that we have committed and the just damnation that we deserve. And so in order for us to know these things, um, God's going to have to make some things specific. He's going to have to be more specific than what we see in nature, what we see in other human beings, what we see in ourselves that we're made in the image of God. Um, He's going to have to give us more than that. And as far as what God reveals in nature, there are... uh, Paul ends in his Moody Handbook of Theology lists eight items of information that every single person knows. Okay, that, that is a person who has the ability to reason. And let, let me get to your question in just a second. First, uh, as we see here in Psalm 19, it, creation reveals that God exists and that God is glorious. And we saw that again in Romans 1.8, that he is he is a God of glory. And then in verses 18 through 21 in here in Romans, everyone knows that God is omnipotent and that he is the judge, right? That they know he exists. Notice at the end of verse 20, they are without excuse. Everything that they know about God is enough to condemn them. It's enough to condemn us to eternal hell because we know enough um, uh, in order to be condemned. We also know that God is benevolent or loving to all people. Um, and we know that God provides food for all people. Like He clothes the grass of the field. How much more will He will He clothe you? Um, he takes care of of people. Um, we also know that God raises and removes rulers, according to Dan, Daniel 2:21. And I think everyone knows that God has placed this law in their hearts. Romans 2:14 and 15 read for when the gentiles do not do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when according to the judge to the gospel god will judge the secret men's secrets of men through christ so their law the law there, there is in, within the heart of every single rational human being the appreciation for or at least the recognition of right and wrong. Right? How, how does a person know that, that rape and murder are wrong? How does a person know that a holocaust is wrong and not right? I mean, how do they know that? And the answer is right here in Romans 2.15. It's because God has written the law. He's, he's given everyone a conscience so they have somewhat of a capability of determining what is right and what is wrong. Now, the problem is, because of our depravity, we suppress that truth and we actually we instruct our conscience against what God has taught it. But, but the, the truth is that everyone knows um, that there is a God. All right. Sorry, that was long before I got to your question. Greg. Yeah. Um, does he have the power to do that? Yes. Does he? I don't think so. 
Um, I don't see any place, especially when you get later into the epistles, where that that was happening at all. Um, it seems like those types of of um, encounters where God would send His angels and make it clear to the person that that was from God, those types of encounters were um, were left for the pre-Christ days and the the near post-Christ days. That is, when He first came in order to establish the church and to attest to or to prove that these apostles that are saying this this message came from God, in order to attest that that was true, then they had these miracles that they could do and also, you know, you'd have these visions that were taking place to kind of give further validity. Now that we have the completed Word of God, like we sang in the last verse, um, which comes from Hebrews 1, says, God revealed Himself in nature, then within His breathed out Word, but in recent times has spoken through, through His Son, our Lord. And so the, the best representation of God is not in the angels. The best representation of God is through Christ, and we have Christ. He's revealed Himself through the Word, and so that's all we need. So, um, so I would suggest that, that God has the power to send angels, and I think during the Millennial Kingdom there will be that going on again. Or, sorry, during the Tribulation period that will be going on again. But during this age of the church or age of grace, I don't think God works in that way. I, I don't think it's necessary anymore. Yeah, yeah, that was a good question. Great, thank you. Bill, please. Yeah, but I mean, Old Testament believer would also be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, there is there is some question about that passage in Hebrews where it says, um, you know, be hospitable to all people because you never know if you're going to be entertaining angels unawares or something like that. And and in the context, I think what that's talking about is is Abraham from Genesis 18, where the angels came and visited him. And I don't think that that's saying, hey, there's a possibility that you're in this dispensation going to be entertaining an angel. I just think the point is be hospitable because just like it would have been bad for Abraham to to avoid hospitality there, then um, it would be bad for you to do the same thing, not for the same reason I, I would suggest. So maybe that muddies the, the question a little bit more or the answer. All right, so the purpose of God's revealing himself through general, uh, general revelation, that's your first blank, by the way, general revelation, is so that it would be a foundation or a backdrop for God's special revelation, which is what we're going to talk about. Um, and then also so that it would be enough to condemn a person because they have enough to, they know enough about God. They're made in God's image. They know that God exists. They know all these things that we just talked about that are true about God, and they have the law written on their hearts. And so based on all that, it is completely just of God to condemn you and me to an eternal hell on, on the basis of general revelation alone. All right, that was the first one. Anyone have any questions or comments on that? All right, let's turn back to Psalm 19. And the second blank here is special revelation. Special revelation. So in contrast to general revelation, 
general revelation which is <clears throat> available to all people and actually known by all people, that all people know that God exists. Special revelation is not known by all people. God has chosen in His wisdom to, to reveal Himself to certain people in a more specific way. And it is how we can come to have a relationship with Him. And so let's take a survey. Through, let's look at Psalm 19 first, and then I'll um, take a survey through the Bible and, and think about that together. Verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great rewards. So here in verses 7 and following, following, the psalmist here turns from David turns from talking about general general revelation in verses 1 through 6 to talking about special revelation that is the law of the Lord God's word has now been revealed to us it is perfect he talks about all its characteristics and what it does for us and this is what is required of us to know in order for us to come and have a relationship with God now it's not that required that we know everything that's in it it's required that we know that the, the gospel that comes from it is, is the point. So let's take a survey here through the Old Testament briefly and, and think about how God reveals himself in, in this more direct way and in a way that allows people to come to him. In the Old Testament, God spoke very clearly to Abraham, right? He called him with an audible voice in Genesis 12, told him to go where he would lead him and, and spoke a number of promises to him in Genesis 15. And and he told him that through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth, earth will be blessed. And those who bless you, will uh, I will bless. And, I, and those who curse you, I will curse. And so God spoke audibly to Abraham. God also spoke, there are certainly a number of illustrations that we can use about how God's revealed himself in this um, special way, as we say. Uh, but, but how about the law? That God spoke very directly to Moses by giving him the law by which the people of Israel were to understand the ways of God, understand that they were the chosen people of God, that God said that you are my people and I will be your God. You know, I, you will be my people and I will be your God. So, so I'm, I'm entering into a relationship with you, Israel. And it was through this law that, that God would show his people um, that, that keeping the law was not enough to, to come to him. In fact, that's not the purpose of the law. It wasn't to to show them that they could do enough to, to be accepted by God. The purpose of the law was to show that they couldn't do enough to be accepted by God, that, that, they, that they had to depend upon God's, God's uh, answer for receiving righteousness, and it was simply um, trusting in Him by faith. And uh, so we'll talk about that more in depth in, in depth in a few minutes because that's really the heart of special revelation, that gospel that we love. Then in the prophets, God was doing a number of things and um, for Israel and through Israel and, and also the surrounding nations. But, but there he spoke through the prophets. This is a special revelation where God reveals himself, not through creation. People couldn't know about what the prophets were talking about through creation. They had to know about it through um, God speaking to them through actual men. And so that's what the prophets were all, all about. They would bring message of, messages of judgment 
but also promises of hope. In fact, if you read through just the, the minor prophets, the, the last 12 prophets of your Old Testament, you're going to find a lot of judgment passages. When I first started here in '09, that's the very first series I did on Sunday night was the minor prophets. And, and I was struck by how many times I would come back to the same topic, judgment, 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 judgment. Um, and, and I think God did that for a reason because he wanted us to see how serious he is about our sin and how serious he is about accepting his, his answer for that sin. And, um, but thankfully, the prophets are not all about judgment. There's, it's filled with, they, are, they are all filled with hope. Um, Isaiah is a great example of that. But, but many of them uh, do the same thing. And many of these messages from the prophets pointed to the coming of Jesus Christ. So now we can turn to Hebrews 1 and see how God is revealing himself today through special revelation. Hebrews 1. And I've already alluded to this because in, in answer to Greg's question there, because that was the last verse of the song we just sang, and, and it's based on these verses. So would someone read verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 1? All right, so I love how this author of Hebrews just helps us transition from the Old Testament to what we have now. He, he starts out by saying, God has spoken in many times and in many ways, you know, through the angels and things like that, and through the law, God spoke through all those different ways. But now, how has God spoken to us in verse 2? What's the answer? Through His Son, whom He appointed as heir and inheritor of all things, through whom He also made the world. So, So now we have this better revelation than even what the Old Testament has because we have not just God's voice speaking to them or God speaking through His messengers, but now God coming Himself in the persons of, of Jesus Christ. Jesus incarnate. He comes to the earth and speaks on behalf of God and does it well because He is God. That's what John 1 tells us, right? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so what are we talking about? Are we talking about the Bible was God? And what, what is that? No, we go back down to John 1.14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen His glory full of, of grace and truth. And, and that is Jesus. So, so Jesus is God. He's the best representation of God. He's the perfect representation of God. And so it's no accident that John, in his gospel, calls Jesus the Word because he is God's revelation to us in human form. We see what God is. We see who God is, what, what he's like, what he likes, what he do, doesn't like. So what about today? Do we hear an audible voice of God the way that Abraham and Moses did? Well, God did speak audibly in the Old Testament, and I think in Acts you see that as well. Um, and, and obviously, even before that, with Jesus coming. But today, God speaks to us not through an audible voice primarily, but, but through His Word. Uh, the, he doesn't speak through angels in that sense. He doesn't speak through, um, through some other prophet or something. He speaks through His Word. That's how we know who Jesus is. We know it from His Word. We don't take it on 
Um, you know, we, we trust in, in legend that's been passed down from generation to generation. No, we don't trust in that. We trust in the written word of God because God has, has inspired this word of God and has left it for us, preserved it so that we can, we can trust it. So uh, we're going to look at five things that we learned from, about Jesus from Scripture. But before we do, do you have any questions or comments? Do you understand the difference between general and special revelation? Okay, good. All right, first, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Say he is the image of God, Colossians 1.15. And let me get some volunteers to read these texts for us. So I've got five passages here. Eric, Colossians 1.15, and then Bill, John 12, 49 and 50. Paul, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. Jennifer, John 18, 33 to 37. And then one more, Evan. John 1, 1, which we just looked at, but, but it'll be good to hear it again. All right, so first, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, 15. All right, so um, here uh, in the next verse it says, "For by him Christ all things were created." So if we're wondering, okay, who 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 what who is this talking about? This is talking about Christ. In the previous verse, is talking about rescuing us from darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And this beloved Son is the image, the exact representation of who God is. Second, Jesus was a prophet. John twelve forty nine and fifty. All right. One of the interesting things that you find when you're reading through the the prophets is that it's hard to tell when the prophet is talking and when God is talking. You know, it's that he'll start talking and then the next thing you know he says, um, "This is what you ought to do." Thus says the Lord, or I have told you to, or I treated you like a son, and and all these things. And you're wondering if it's the prophet. And, and the point is, is that the prophet is so so direct in how he speaks about God that it's, it's hard to even tell if it's God speaking or the prophet speaking. And how much more significant is that when Jesus comes? That, that as Bill read, that, that Jesus says, I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So do you want to know what the Father thinks? What he's like? What, what, he, um, what he hates? Then, then um, just listen to me because I come from the Father. I, I am God the Son. And so Jesus was a prophet. He, he fulfilled all of those prophets who, you know, they did their best. But, you know, the problem with Old Testament prophets is they all eventually died, right? And you have to get another one. And Jesus is a prophet who lives forever. He died, certainly, but he has been raised from the dead and, and he speaks with authority on behalf of God. Third, Scripture shows, shows us that Jesus is a priest. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and 
captured the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Okay, so again, Jesus satisfies or fulfills what the role of the Old Testament priest was. What was the role of the Old Testament priest in 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 those days? Okay. So he was to offer sins, and we could say on behalf of the people. So he was supposed to be effectively a mediator, right? Because no one could just walk in, just kind of barge into the holy place or the most holy place and say, hey, I'm, I'm here to... To get right with you, God, you couldn't do that, could you? You had to go through the high priest, and he could only go in once a year, and he would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And um, even even a, a non-Levite could, couldn't even come into the outer courts of the temple and, and offer a sacrifice there. They had to have the priest do it on their behalf. And so they, they uh, lived or operated as a mediator between God and man. That they, that they spanned the gap, according to God's plan, between God and man. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That, that no longer do we, do we need to come with the blood of bulls and goats because Christ comes, as this text says, with his own blood. And he's now entered into the most holy place of God. He lives there now with God the Father. And so now we, having obtained redemption, now can go directly to God the Father through God the Son. Right? So we don't have to go through a priest today. Jesus is our priest and, um, and effectively has made us a kingdom of priests, which is what Peter talks about in his letter. So prophet, priest, and then third or, or fourth there, you should probably know there is king. Right? Prophet, priest, and king. You often hear those three um, together in a triplet. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is all three of those. He fulfilled all of these roles of the Old Testament. So would someone read John 18, the person I signed, preferably, John 18, 33 to 37. All right, so in the Old Testament, again, you had this, this, um, this office of, of a king set up uh, with, with King Saul in Israel, and then it went on, and, and obviously you had just um, kind of a roller coaster of, of uh, morality throughout the ages of the kings, right? You had some who, who honored God and who were nothing like King David, and then you had some who, I'm sorry, who honored God and were like their, you know, their predecessor, King David. And then you had others who defied God and who set up the altars and who, who defied his command, were not concerned about his word, and they were nothing like King David. 
But the point is that you had all these kings who were good or bad or sometimes a mixture of both, or I would say always a mixture of both um, some, to some degree. And yet with each of those kings, they all died. And so the, the question that it leaves the Old Testament saint with is, well, what are we going to do about this king that's supposed to live forever? We're supposed to have a kingdom that never ends. So how is this going to happen? And that's when Jesus comes along and fulfills what a king is ought, to, ought to be, which is, as we saw, we're studying through King Saul, that he was supposed to follow the word of God and that as the king went, often the people went. And so he was supposed to, to, be, to submit himself to the word of God. Jesus obviously did that in a perfect way. And as Pilate talks to him, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, this is not my kingdom. I'm not trying to overthrow your kingdom here, Pilate. Um, my kingdom is not of this world. It's, it's of another world. It's going to be presented or given to me, the keys of the kingdom um, from the Father, and, and um, that will take place at the end of the tribulation. And at that time, I will rule on this earth. And so Pilate says, so you are a king then. Is that what you're telling me? And Jesus says, well, you're the one who said it, and you say it correctly, and that's the reason I've been born. I came into the world to be the king, and, um, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus fulfilled these two, these three important roles in the Old Testament, that he is prophet, priest, and king. Finally, we learned from Scripture that Jesus is God. Again, John 1.1. 1, 1. Okay, so again, we, we saw there that that's talking about Christ, that in the beginning was Christ, and Christ was with God, and Christ was God. Um, Colossians 1, as I mentioned earlier, verse 16, tells us that through Christ all things were made, that Christ was present at the creation. We might like to think that God the Father was the only one there, but, but no, God the Son and God the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit was hovering over the, the waters. And here in Colossians 1, we learn that Jesus was, or Christ was a part of it as well. And that's because Jesus is God. He is, he is by very nature God. He, he didn't become God. He didn't start to exist when he was born. He, he existed before he was born as Christ, the eternal Son of God. And um, so we have Christ in those five ways. That's part of what special revelation is. That is, it's a revelation of who Christ is. And we learned those five things, at least about who Christ is. Any questions on that before we finish up here? All right, so Scripture tells us all of these things about Jesus, but it also tells us very clearly that we are sinners, that our sins help, or they don't help us, they keep us from meeting with God. And so we have to remember that, that though we are transgressors, we can't simply restore this relationship by stop stopping our sin, right? So if there has been a, a crime that's committed against a person, and let, let's just take it to the most serious degree, a, a murder that's, that's taken, uh, that a person does on another person, they murder a person. So, so is it okay for them? Are they going to be able to come in a right relationship with the court, with the state, with the judge, if they say, you know, I've decided to stop murdering people? I mean, is that enough? Right? No, there's, there's a punishment that must be endured. And Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and, and as a result, God banished them. And this is what happens when we sin, that God must reach out and, and either banish us, 
punish us or remove that punishment from us because we are all by nature, what does Ephesians say? We are by nature children of wrath, children under wrath. We're born under the wrath of God. That is, we're, we're like that murderer on the, you know, on the defense side there um, saying, listen, we don't have anything that we can do to, to make up for what we've done. And so God is going to have to come in and, and he's going to have to satisfy his own wrath 1 John 1, nine says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then um, turn with me to Hebrews 4. We're finishing up here. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Actually, let's start in verse... Um, I think 14 would be helpful. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The New Testament establishes that we are sinners and that God has to be the one to forgive us of our sins. The New Testament establishes that we are sinners and that God is the one who has to. Just like, just like in general revelation, if God's going to speak to us, if we're going to have a relationship with God, the only way that that can happen is if God initiates that relationship. He's the one who has to reveal himself. If he doesn't say anything about himself, then we can't know him. And the same thing is true in special revelation that in order for us to have a relationship with God, we can't initiate that relationship on our own because of our sin. We don't have the ability to, according to Romans 8, and we don't have the desire to either. And so God has to effectively love us first. And what this passage of Scripture is saying is that because this relationship is now possible, because we have this high priest, this great high priest, Jesus Christ, then we ought to, verse 16, draw near with confidence in other words, take advantage of the mediator that we have in Jesus. And this is what different, uh, separates us from the more mystical traditions of Christianity. We don't cultivate a relationship with God through some kind of a, ethereal connection with the trees or some ethereal connections uh, with anything else other than this connection that we have with Christ. And so if we're going to cultivate a relationship with God, then we have to do it on the basis of what He has established and what the scriptures teach us is that he's established this relationship through Jesus Christ. Therefore, on the basis of all this scripture and all that we learn about Jesus and our relationship with God, our assumption that we can cultivate a relationship with God is not unfounded. It's actually a, a, a real um, truth that we can count on, that we can have a relationship with God. And so really, it's just a matter of us taking God at his word. God says, yes, you can have a relationship with God. You know how? Through Christ. Look at Christ. And so we've answered the first question, can we? And next week we want to answer the question, why should we? All right. Any final questions or comments? All right. Excellent. Let's pray. Father, we are regularly amazed at your grace and 
Every time we hear the gospel, we are reminded of how much of a merciful Savior we have in Christ. And Lord, how much love you have shown to us despite our deserving of your punishment, your wrath. And so, Lord, we praise you for your grace. And we pray that it would help um, us to be revived in our spirits, to desire to cultivate this relationship with you. And I pray that these next five weeks we'll be able to think more carefully about how we do that and then put it into practice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.